hello, Governor. How y'all doing out there in podcast world? Um, I decided to do the intro today. This is Chris for Gen X Cinema Geeks because we had an old lifelong friend listen to the podcast, and that lifelong friend said that I have the voice of a golden harp. Therefore, I am bringing my magical, <laughs> magical mouth oh, sounds to you here today. For the Secret Lists, Episode 3. Episode 3. Revenge uh, of the Lists. Revenge of the Lists. For those of you not familiar with the podcast, I'm Chris. I'm joined by my brother Rich, who's just sitting over there making a lot of noise. Cheers, Mike. Uh, and what we do is we talk about movies here. We talk about movies that uh, you either need reminding of that were awesome and or that you've never seen that we think you should see to expand your cinematic horizons. Uh, we went through the 90s. In their entirety, and right now we're doing what we call the secret lists, which are just rando top ten lists that we come up with, and we do not share with each other until we are set to record like today. Like today. Like this dramatic moment right here. And so, with that said, uh, are you ready to introduce your list? Uh, I'll open yours first. How about that? Oh, you're going to open my list. Okay. Uh, I'm opening up her list right now with my hands. Yeah, so we, we've put the, the topic of our list in sealed envelopes. Very much like the Academy Awards, they were just walked in by the folks from Price Waterhouse. Uh, they were handcuffed to somebody just a moment ago, mm-hmm. and uh, here we go. All right, your list is a rogues gallery of most entertaining movie villains. That is Ooh. correct. I have a feeling we're going to see some mustache twirling here. Yeah, so I decided this time I wasn't going to highlight a, like a movie in its entirety specifically, but rather count down my top ten favorite uh, performances um, by movie villains, and uh, the caveat should be that you know they don't all have to be evil people; they just have to be the antagonist of the movie and/or one of the antagonists. And I've chosen um, performances where I believe that watching the villain is as entertaining, if not more entertaining, than watching the protagonist. Got it. So it should be. Nice and fun. Sounds please intriguing. Keep in mi- please keep in mind that I'm in no way supporting gangsterism, murderers, <laughs> pirates, and global or, dominance, and or any kind of other horrific acts. I'm merely saying that the people who play these characters are pretty fun to watch. That's it. Very well. Having said that, let's open Rich's secret list envelope. Let me crinkle it here so you can hear that it does in fact exist in my hand. Did exist in my hand. Uh, Rich's Secret List 3, Top 10 Films Featuring Beyond Their Years Performances by Child Actors. So we have, so I have villains and you have the innocent babes of <laughs> innocent Hollywood. Innocent babes in the woods. Yeah, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to highlight some performances where kids did more than just play the cute kid and actually had to carry the weight of some pretty heavy subject matter upon their young shoulders and did so with great aplomb. And it seems timely after two former child actors just cleaned up at the recent Academy Awards. You had Kihu Kwan, winning supporting actor. Uh, he played Short Round and he was one of the Goonies. And then you had Sarah Pauly, who was in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen and Avonlea when she was a child. And now she's a, a, an adapted screenplay winner. So One could even argue that Jamie Lee Curtis has been acting since she was, what, like a teenager? 
I think she was 18 or 19 when she did Halloween. Yeah. Uh, this is, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because one caveat is I try to keep the kids in my list no older than 16, but I might have made an exception or two here or there. I do find it fascinating that we've both chosen to highlight performances this time, completely mm. inadvertently, because, mm. as previously mentioned, uh, we do not share our lists in advance. Um, we perform in our research in secret. Yeah. But interesting that uh, we both decided to go this direction. So, um, accordingly, since I'm talking about performances, I'm not going to get into a lot of the writing, directing, some of the, like... Yeah, um, same here, probably. Some of the, like, pedigree information for the yeah. movie that I usually go into because I really just want to talk about uh, the performance that made it stand out to me. So, um, yeah. that's... And, and I, I've also decided to open it up to my 90s movies because there were just a couple that I couldn't not... I, I mean, had yeah, to I'd also, I'd also like to point out that in my list, I, I said 10 films with Beyond Their Years. Kids' performances doesn't necessarily mean there's, there's one per film. I have one movie with four. Mm. So, you know. Well, why don't you get started and maybe we'll hear about that. I will. I'll get started with my number 10. Uh, Put your dragon. Shut up! I mean, I'm just saying. If people right. want to hear about the movie, Are you ready? it's not your opinion. Are you ready? Sure. I want to rock! Rock! Sorry. I want to rock! All right, apologies to Twisted Sister. There was that golden harp again. Which is Damn it. something I never thought I would say in my lifetime. All right, my number 10 with my talented tots, and I will call them the kids in question. They are Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward, who uh, were the stars of the 2012 delightful, uh, quirky, idiosyncratic comedy Moonrise Kingdom by Wes oh, Anderson. That is a cute movie, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, they play two uh, kids who are feeling the blossom of young love and they run away from uh, their bad family situations. In the case of uh, Jared Gilman, he has no family. He's an orphan and he only has uh, the Cub Scouts that he's uh, attached to, but he, he resigns from being a scout and runs away. And Edward Norton, who steals a lot of the scenes he's in, plays a sort of a himbo scoutmaster who's <laughs> chasing them. Of course, it's Wes Anderson, so you get all the the quirky symmetrical framing, the the '60s uh, pop needle drops, and the usual cast of characters. Uh, these kids are surrounded by Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Harvey Keitel, Jason Schwartzman, so many people. Uh, shot on uh, Rhode Island, looks very beautiful. Uh, they, these kids have great chemistry. They they really do. They they I really felt like they were experiencing the blossom of a first love. So and and this is also the second great movie that Bruce Willis did with a child actor. I mean, he was great with the Osmond there in the Sixth Sense, but that's not the one that's on my list. So yeah, the Moonrise Kingdom is a delightful uh, coming of age movie, and I range it a little lower because. It gets a little bit more intense from here, folks. I've, the theme of my list is beyond their years. So. Oh, no. Are you going to be all dark again? A couple of them are dark, but a couple of them are very warm-hearted, too. I can so you please anyway. do, like, can your next list be something that's, like, innately happy? <laughs> I'll do my best, folks. Anyway, that's my number Comedies 10. Comedies or something. For the Moon Rise Kingdom is my number 10. What you got there, fool? All right, my number 10, I also, okay, so I want to go on record as saying that the performance here is way better than number 10, but I ranked it number 10 because I think as far as villains go, even though this person, the character is most decidedly a villain, he's also 
half protagonist, right? Um, and there will be a lot of people who say he's not a villain at all, but let's be honest, he really is. Uh, so my number 10 is um, from 2003's Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. I selected Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, look, everybody loves Jack Sparrow. But why is the rum gone? Right? <laughs> Savvy? I mean, he's hilarious. I mean, he steals every scene out from um, everybody, let's be honest. Um, the movie should have been Will Turner's movie. It becomes Jack Sparrow's movie. But ultimately, he's a pirate, and he's selfish, and he's trying to get his ship back. And he hands over Will Turner to the pirates so that they can take his blood, etc. He's just—he's not a good dude. He's not. He's a better dude than Barbosa, but that doesn't make him a good dude. Um, he's villain adjacent. Yeah, he is villain adjacent. But he's certainly not meant to be the hero. I think they kind of added him to the hero roster in subsequent movies because he was so popular. Um the character itself, but I, if you haven't seen him, you really have to, because Johnny Depp just inhabits this absolutely strange, I think he said he was influenced by Keith Richards when coming up with the character of Captain Jack Sparrow. You definitely see that. Yeah, and he has these great lines. I wrote down uh, one of my favorite lines from everyone um, to add to the description. The one that cracks me up the most about Jack Sparrow, uh, when he's in jail, and they're recreating the scene from the Pirates of the Caribbean Disney ride where the guys are like trying to get the dog to come over with the keys. He says, you can keep doing that forever. The dog is never going to move. <laughs> and it's funny because if you've been on the ride. A million times. You like know that. that they've been trying to get that dog to come over for like, I don't know, 60 years or something. And the it just, Pirates of the Caribbean, this week, the ride just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Yeah. Or 60, mainly 60, I don't remember. So super entertaining. Super, I mean, he absolutely plays it for laughs. He plays it for camp. Um, but uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, one of the iconic movie villains of the aughts. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting... Follow that. It's a pretty <laughs> interesting uh, entry because, like we said, he's kind of not 100% the villain, but he's... Yeah, he's okay. also not the good guy. <laughs> so my number nine uh, kid in question is a, a young uh, child actor who has since become one of the best uh, and most talented leading men of recent years. His name is Christian Bale. Maybe you've heard of him. I am Batman. Uh, but he burst onto the scene in 1987 at the age of 13 in Steven Spielberg's was, Empire of the Sun. There was bursting? He burst. I mean, he, he was an amazing uh, child performance in uh, Empire of the Sun. Uh, he plays kind of a spoiled little British rich kid living in, uh, I think it's in China. And then it's invaded by enemy forces during World War II, and he is forced to grow up in an internment camp, and little Christian Bale steals this entire movie. He's in virtually every single scene in this movie as he goes through what he dubs the University of Life. He grows up fast. He is a uh, boy who is surrounded by warfare. He sees beatings. He sees uh, uh, chaos and evacuations. And, and one of my favorite scenes in the movie, he even sees... Uh, he's a person, dead people? He sees a dead person, actually. He sees a person die, and then he sees a brilliant burst of light in the sky, which he thinks is her soul going to heaven. But what he's actually seeing is the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima. And it's at that moment where man's reach for destruction can actually be mistaken for divine or supernatural by a child. Very heavy, heavy stuff. Spielberg, of course, surrounded by his usual... Gang of Talent, John Williams writes an impressive score, great cinematography, but yeah, Christian Bale just kills it as Jim, 
and uh, he just he breaks your heart. He really, really does. He's so astonishingly talented. Bursts, bursts, bursts your, heart. your heart. So if you haven't seen Spielberg's, I think personally most underrated movie, Empire of the Sun, give it a watch. But bring your hankies because you will cry. I guarantee it. Good times. Yeah, good times. How do you, there, dude? Uh. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> For my number nine, um, I'm going back to the 90s. Big surprise, right? Um, and again, this is another one where the performance is probably better than the ranking. There's a reason I have it as low as I do. Um, I have selected Powers Booth as Curly Bill Brocious <laughs> in 1993's Tombstone. Well, um, bye. <laughs> that is exactly the line I pressed I saved too. Well, bye. Um, so Powers Booth plays Curly Bill, who is the head of the Cowboys Gang, the notorious Cowboys Gang, um, who are wreaking havoc on the small western town of Tombstone when the Earp Brothers, uh, headed by, um, you know, former lawman Wyatt Earp, um, comes to town. And, of course, he has to regulate and, like, you know, sort them out and fix everything for the people who live there, make it nice and pretty so did the property just, values go up. Regulate <laughs> regulators? Mount up! I did. Uh, the reason I, I only gave him number nine... Okay, well, let's start by saying that in a in a gang full of, I mean, so, let's be honest, there's some utter morons in this gang, right? Like Ike, uh, Ike I, Clanton. I, Ike Clanton could I know. find. Let's have a spelling contest. He could find sand if you fill off a camel. That's right. I mean, the Cowboys are bad guys. You know, they rob, they cheat, they steal. And uh, Powers Booth leads this merry band of morons, but he does it with a very, very dry wit, um, which is always my favorite. And give me some sarcasm any day, and I'm happy as a camper. Uh, the reason he's only number nine on this list, because he really is super fun to watch, is uh, because no one was stealing this movie from Pal Kilmer, for being, yeah, for being truthful with ourselves yeah. here. But as He movie, came close. Yeah, as movie yeah. villains go, he's certainly more entertaining than Wyatt Earp. Sorry, Kurt Russell, you're a great guy. Um, he's certainly more entertaining than that. He uh, his, his wry humor kind of adds some levity to some of the scenes, and especially to Johnny Ringo's kind of out there. Um, yeah, Johnny Ringo's actually evil, the, if you yeah. will. <laughs> Johnny Ringo's really the uh, yeah. the most evil of the two. He's just he not is. in charge. He absolutely <laughs> is. And Curly Bill, um, Curly Bill shows that he has some semblance of morality in that he's the leader of a band of, you know, Cut reckless, throats. ruthless cowboys. <laughs> but he also needs to regulate his own and make sure that they don't go, you know, off the deep end. Yeah. So Power Spooth, uh, Curly Bill Brocious, always a fun watch. So that means I'm at my number eight, and this movie has a special place in my heart because it came out the same exact year, great timing, that my own uh, lovely daughter was in the eighth grade, and it is eighth grade, uh, from 2018, written and directed by Bo Burnham. The kid in question is 13-year-old Elsie Fisher. She plays a shy, introverted teenager who is struggling with anxiety and uh, all kinds of the usual teen issues before she goes into high school, and... Uh, it's just a very sweet coming. If to me, you know, we have the Gen X kids, we have the breakfast club, right? This generation of kids will have eighth grade. I think this is going to be their movie. It, it, it definitely is. They had the TikTok. Oh heck with TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) They have the TikTok. They also have eighth grade as cinema goes, but it is a a wonderful story of uh, kids today and how they broadcast every single thing they do 24 seven on social media and it is a, a wonderful um, examination of that and how it can put a lot of unnecessary pressure on kids. I love Elsie Fisher. She's just so normal. She's so adorable in her normalness. Uh, it's a great performance from her. 
Previously, she had no acting experience. I think she did a couple of voiceovers in the, um, I want to say the Despicable Me movies or the Minion movies, I think. And Josh Hamilton does a great job playing her single father. And uh, I don't know, this movie, man, it was like, like watching a documentary of me and my own daughter's relationship at that time. So Bo Burnham, who's known for being a, a YouTuber, I believe. Uh, wrote, I told you. <laughs> yeah, he, he wrote this script, he got it made, and it turned out to be a delightful but a, but a painful movie to watch because she's so awkward and adorable, and you just you're just rooting for Kayla the entire entire movie. So a good good movie for today's kids. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going deep into the '90s. Um, Again? Yeah. And, well, let's be honest. So I my number eight is in a four way tie with himself. Um, <laughs> basically, basically. He, he tore up the 90s on screen as all kinds of bad guys, and I just couldn't pick which one was my favorite because they're all amazing. Um, and so I, I kind of just made him number eight, <laughs> and you can, like, choose which one works the best for you. So uh, number eight on my list of villains is the, I mean, the incomparable Gary Oldman. Uh, and I've chosen him in 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula, in 1994's Leon the Professional, where he plays Stansfield. 1997, he plays Zorg in The Fifth Element. <laughs> and in 1997, he plays Ivan Kushinov in Air Force One. Um, Gary Oldman was the villain of choice <laughs> for everyone in the 90s. Um, I, I actually really enjoy all of these movies, and he's a huge, huge part of it. And I think in every single case, he steals the movie right out from underneath. So he just went with his whole resume, <laughs> yeah, basically. Right? I mean, let's just say number eight is Gary Oldman in anything he does. But then he did, like, he played like Commissioner Gordon later, and so he's yeah. like Christian Bale is bad, really yeah. good guy. And then he played Sirius Black, so he's an actual good guy. Right. So, Churchill, he played Churchill. He played Winston freaking Churchill. So I mean, you can't really say his whole catalog. I just chose Gary Oldman's 1990s villains um, for uh, one of my favorite lines from. I have to say, if I had to edge out any of them, I would probably choose Stansfield from The Professional, um, where he plays this, like, drugged-out cop who is completely corrupt. Uh, I love um, him in that one. That may although, be the... he's so funny as Zorg, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of the four you picked, I think Leon is probably my favorite, but, God, they're all good. They're also good. They're all good. And he's, I mean, look at the accents, too, yeah. right? Like, the accent he pulls off in Dracula, ridiculous. Yeah. He made up some, like, Texas ham-fisted accent for the fifth element, like, that doesn't really belong in outer space, but it's hilarious. Mm. Um, my line, though, is from Leon the Professional, when he says, bring me everyone. And the other guy says, what do you mean, everyone? <laughs> everyone! And if you haven't seen it, you really got to see it. Um, oh, it's the meme. I it, think it's a, a, a meme. I'm sure... <laughs> Gary Oldman, you're a meme. That means you've arrived, my friend. Yeah. Um, an amazing actor playing four amazing villains in the 90s. If you missed him in any one of them, shame on you. Well, that kind of... My number seven, I feel, might be underwhelming after <laughs> that. I only have one movie with one kid for my talented kids here. Uh, but it is a classic. Well, if your kids were more talented, they could have four movies. <laughs> Actually, this one had multiple movies. Oh, I'm well, just picking the first one in the series. Well, that's, that's on you, then. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going all the way back to the La Nouvelle Vague for this one, the French New Wave from 1959. I picked the OG angry young man, Jean-Pierre Liard, in The 400 Blows. This is the ultimate um, kid who is basically constantly ignored. He's uh, berated for... Every little thing, he just can't get a break. 
this is a kid who is everyone around him seems to think that he's doomed to fail. So he sort of, it's a kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. He just, why not at this point, you know, why not just steal a typewriter for money? Why not, you know, skip school and go to the carnival every day? But the one time he actually tries to write a report and turn it in, he, he's accused of cheating. So it's, it's the, it's the anti coming of age movie, the 400 blows if you haven't seen it. And, um, uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot does a fantastic job of playing this angry young man and also kind of disappointed that no one will take him seriously. And he ends up in a reform school where you, you just get the, the sense watching this movie that all he's going to do is just keep running away from one bad situation to another. And it's kind of Truffaut. This was his directorial debut, Francois Truffaut, and he did a just a wonderful job. And it's um, it's uh, it's... It's just a great film, and the ending, of course, that freeze frame ending is just is is great. But is Antoine? That's the character's name, Antoine. Is his descent his own fault? Is he? Uh, is it a nature versus nurture thing? Is it the system that failed him? Is it? I mean, what failed him? Did he fail himself? The movie never really answers the questions, and it's all the better for it. So, if you haven't seen the Four Hundred Blows, by all means, check it out. <laughs> Nonsense. By all <laughs> means, move <laughs> again with the tombstone. Interesting. Have not seen it, but there you go, throwing some bougie into yeah, the proceedings. Some, there's some bougie. It's I in mean, the Criterion collection. If there wasn't a Criterion foreign film that you couldn't pronounce the title of, would this even be our podcast? Oh, I got a couple, actually. I'm not <laughs> I, on the other hand, am going right back to where I live. Hashtag basic. Which is Disney. <laughs> and let me tell you, I had a lot of options for the charismatically amazing uh, villains, if you go into the Disney canon, right? I mean, James Woods and Hercules is great. You've got Jafar, you've got Scar, Prince Abubu. Prince Abubu, that's right. But the snarkiest, sassiest, most charismatic of all of the Disney villains has got to be my personal favorite, Pat Carroll, as Ursula the Sea Witch in 1989's The Little Mermaid. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> she is. So good. Life's just full of tough choices, isn't it? And of course, that's the line that I chose because she's great. Poor Unfortunate Souls, possibly the best villain song in any Disney film. I mean, and there's a lot. There's a lot of really good ones to choose from. But for some reason, in my personal opinion, Pat Carroll just absolutely, no pun intended, blows everyone else out of the water. <laughs> um with her foil to our sweet little Ariel when she tricks her into giving up her voice in order to make her a human to go on land and try to woo uh, Prince Eric because, you know, in Disney movies they were always trying to woo guys that they'd seen from afar and for like that, a nanosecond. <laughs> instantly in love with after a single nanosecond. So in all honesty, Ursula was probably doing the right thing, but, you know, here we are. Um, her goal, of course, was to wrest power away from good King Triton by ensnaring his youngest child uh, and then she turns into this creepy, ginormous octopus thing that they have to drive a ship into to kill her. But her performance is as large as her octopus. Um, <laughs> That's an expression I ever thought I'd hear you say. <laughs> she is villainously delicious. Absolutely delicious. So calamari? <laughs> exactly. Except I don't like calamari. But I digress. Um, if you haven't seen Little Mermaid, and again, if you haven't, where the heck have you been? Um, watch it just for Pat Carroll because she's worth it. 10 out of 10, highly recommend. So what you're saying is everyone should, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. 
They should make the Little Mermaid part of their world. <laughs> oh, oh my. Oh. Flotsam, jetsam, now you've got her, boys. <laughs> Rich is on a roll. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's time to move on to my number six. I hope you enjoy it. Did you? Did you really? Yeah, I did. <laughs> All right, number six is another bougie Criterion movie uh, about a kid uh, torn asunder by war. Another one of those, too. Another cool. one of those. I think this movie actually was a heavy inspiration on Empire of the Sun, if I'm not uh, reading too much into it. It's from 1962. The famous Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky uh, did a movie called Ivan's Childhood with Nikolai Berlyav, and I apologize if I butchered this kid's name. But it is how Ivan strikes up an unlikely friendship with some officers in the Russian army where he does scouting work in the forest and uh, lakes, uh, trying to help them flush out the enemy. And uh, (laughs) my cat is yelling at us. Um, So, yeah, this is another story of youthful innocence lost due to the horrors of war, Ivan through no fault of his own, has to do what he has to do to survive. And what I like about this movie, Tarkovsky, massively talented director, uh, this isn't entirely his movie. We actually go into some subplots involving the soldiers that he um, uh, is befriends. And we also see a lot of flashbacks of his uh, youth before the war. So it's uh, oof, beautiful cinematography, beautiful performances. And if, if you have an aversion to watching Russian films, then seriously, just stop. I mean, come on. Subtitles aren't that threatening, for God's sake. Um, but uh, yeah. Yet. <laughs> Yet, comrade. Ivan's childhood is a masterpiece. Um, and it's also, I believe, uh, Tarkovsky's uh, cinematic debut. And the kid, Nikolai Berliev, terrific performance. He's, he's innocent, he's bitter, he's scared, he's brave, he's all of the emotions that a child in war has to be, and the ending will break your heart. That's all I'm going to say. It's very fatalistic. So, yeah, Ivan's Childhood, brilliant film by Andrei Tarkovsky. I watched a lot of really depressing movies. I had to watch. I mean, it was a dirge, man. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. Uh, and I'm on to one of to my first one that's a little darker than the others, I would say, because um, the rest thus far have been pretty. I mean, they're you know good versus evil stories, but they haven't been super like. You had Ursula. I mean, come on. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um, but what would a Chris list be without an appearance? By Denzel Washington. Oh, no. Yes, in his Academy Award-winning performance, my number six is the man, the myth, the legend, Denzel Washington, as Alonzo Harris in 2001's Training Day. What can you even say about this movie? Okay, Training Day. Training Day is a great movie, if you haven't seen it. He plays a um, veteran police officer in the narcotics division, and he is training Ethan Hawke on his first day in his new division, Um, and throughout the course of the day, you start to see that, um, Alonzo's compass doesn't necessarily point north, right? But the interesting thing about this movie and about the performance by Denzel is that he, he is able to justify to himself his gray morality because he believes he's doing it for the greater good. And so the movie kind of blurs the line and asks you to define the line, really, between how far does a man have to go (laughs) to do what is ultimately the right thing, and is it worth breaking a few rules along the way? 
So uh, in that vein, I chose one of my favorite lines from him. He says, to protect the sheep, you got to catch the wolf. And it takes a wolf to catch a wolf. So it's ultimately kind of a description as to how he sees himself as I'm a wolf because you have to be a wolf in order to protect the sheep, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's a really, really interesting character study. Um, it's a very good movie. Denzel turns in a tour de force. Academy Award, well earned. It's Denzel, man. <laughs> and I mean, he actually ad-libbed the line, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> uh, he's amazing. Um, Alonzo Harris, completely flawed, flawed character. Probably the only one here, though, who doesn't, so far, who doesn't have, like, villainous intentions. He's just kind of swept up in his own BS, if uh, if that makes sense. So, great movie, Training Day, great performance. Denzel, you always have a place on my list, friend. No kidding, man. All right. So, again, Kids in War. <laughs> but this one's a great one. This one has My some, God, sir. <laughs> <laughs> this one has a lot of fantasy elements, too. And the kid in question for this one is Ivana Baccaro in the 2006 masterpiece. And I do not use that word lightly. Pan's Labyrinth, written directed by Guillermo del Toro. Ophelia, along with her very pregnant mother, are sent to the military compound run by the brutal Colonel Vidal, who is the father of Ophelia's uh, future sibling. Uh, She begins to retreat into her fantasy world of fawns and fairies, where she is set three tasks in order to rejoin the fairy kingdom. But uh, can she survive the brutal Colonel and his fascist army? Holy moly. Del Toro packed... Ten movies worth of material into this one movie. I adore this movie. This is one of my few perfect ten movies. I love Pan's Labyrinth. It is, to me, Del Toro's masterpiece. And Baccaro, she's just so sweet and innocent, and she grows up really fast. Um, she's whimsical. She's spunky. She's free-thinking. And she's also, what I what I saw this analysis of it on YouTube once, and I actually agree with it, she's also willfully disobedient. And it, the movie actually does deal with themes of when is disobedience actually the right thing to do. It's training day, it is but training. with a child. <laughs> but with a child, it is. Like, um, you know, do you simply follow orders because the person giving them to you outranks you? Or do you actually say, mm, no, that's BS, I'm not going to do it. So Ophelia, um, she her, her quests with the fawn uh, and also to protect her mother and her unborn baby brother blur the line between fantasy and reality. In some cases, you don't even know if she's even imagining all of the the fantasy stuff. Del Toro just weaves together this tapestry of beauty and horror. It's it's what he does. This this has been his M.O. for his whole career. He he does beautiful nightmares. And, oh man, Pan's Labyrinth, I could gush about it for hours. And she is fantastic. We don't have that kind of time. We will lose our audience. (laughs) She is fantastic. Um... I, I just love this movie, but I gotta I gotta also give it to Mirabelle Verdu, who crushes it as the housekeeper who has shifting allegiances in the movie. So if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, first of all, seriously, dude, um, check it out. It is literally one of two thousand the two thousands best movies of all time. Not, no joke. Full stop. Del Toro, Chef's Kiss, buddy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Speaking of Perfect Ten movies, I actually have a couple of my Perfect Ten movies on this list as well, and one of them is number five. Um, And one of them, surprisingly, is my number one. So this list is full of Perfect Tens. I know, right? Uh, Number five. We heard about this one when I did my 1990s list. 
I would be remiss if I did not include this character on my favorite villains, possibly the most twisted villain on the list. However, and I mean, honestly, he's only number five because his screen time is so short. <laughs> but we're looking at another Academy Award. What was it, Clarice? Oh, geez. What was it? Number five, the man, the myth, the legend, Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter in Perfect Ten, 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. Um, where, where do you even begin with The Silence <laughs> of the Lambs? So The Silence of the Lambs, if you haven't seen it, and once you crawl out from under your rock... Um, Silence of the Lambs is a beautifully told story of, um, I mean, there's nothing beautiful about it, but the storytelling is amazing, about a uh, young FBI trainee who is uh, hand-selected, she is plucked <laughs> out of the academy to assist in the investigation into a serial killer named Buffalo Bill, and she is sent to build a rapport and try to get some information out of convicted cannibal murderer Hannibal Lecter played with absolutely creepy gusto <laughs> by the aforementioned Anthony Hopkins, who FYI didn't blink during his performances. If you have, if you guys haven't noticed this, the man does not blink. I mean, I didn't know that actually. What kind of control do you have to have over your own body to not blink <laughs> while you're on? He's just, he plays it, and it's such a fascinating character because he's polite, he has excellent manners, he's cultured, um, he's a doctorate, he's a psychiatrist, um, and he also murders people and eats them. Thus, <laughs> <laughs> thus my man's got to have hobbies. That's right. So my favorite line of his, I mean, there's so many, all the way to the FBI. But my favorite that I chose for the uh, podcast is a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice key ante. <laughs> I mean, you can't forget the little slurpy thing at the end, which is really gross. But I think that Anthony Hopkins has ruined fava beans for the entire world uh, for the last 30 years. Probably key ante, too. <laughs> oh, no. Nobody gives up key ante. Um, so that's where I'm at. Number five, Anthony Hopkins, the incomparable Hannibal Lecter. Does that mean we're at my number four? Well, if you're counting along at home, it certainly does. Okay, so we're going back in time to this one, to the bygone year that was 1962. Was there a child at war? No, this one... Thank the Lord. Although this one does have a war in a courtroom, so to speak. As uh, Mary Badham and Philip Ulford uh, look up to their father, Gregory Peck, in the impeccable To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, can I say something about their father, by the way? Possibly the most forthright character ever written and or put to film. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is my number four, of course, directed by Robert Mulligan, adapted from the book by uh, Harper Lee. We've, we all had to read it. We know what it's about. Uh, 1930s Depression era, Scout and her brother, Jim, uh, watch as their father uh, tries Atticus. to de- Atticus Finch, hero of a million generations, tries to defend uh, uh, black Tom Robinson falsely accused of a heinous crime and he knows it's a lopsided trial he knows he's going to lose but he does it anyway because it's the right thing to do and every man deserves a free trial or not a free trial but a fair, a fair trial that's what I meant to say excuse me um, and a good defense and a good defense and Atticus definitively in my opinion proves that Robinson couldn't in no way have done the crime but to the surprise of literally no one he's guilty anyway but what the story is told through the, the point of view of the kids, particularly Scout, and it is, uh, you know, 
and Mary Badham did get a lot of the accolades, and including an Oscar nomination at nine years old for her performance. But Philip Alford is just as good, in my opinion. Also, the cinematic debut of one Mr. Robert Duvall. As Boo Radley. As Boo Radley. Uh, but as, as I, this almost was my number one. But I mean, Look, I've seen a black and white movie. Are you yeah, proud? I'm proud. <laughs> uh, but I mean, as good as these kids are, no one was beating Gregory Peck in this. <laughs> Gregory Peck, an Oscar well-deserved. Um, he has something special in this movie. and To say, uh, if, if I may interrupt for a moment. Sure. I'm, not that you were going to stop me, but um, you're not wrong that nobody was going to beat Gregory Peck, but I think that leads more credibility to these kids as your choice because mm. these kids keep up with Gregory Peck. They do very and well. Gregory Peck is, I mean, he's Gregory freaking Peck. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, what kid? I mean, it's so it's so terrible that these little kids at such a young age have to deal with such flagrant racism and, and prejudices and, and judge you know judgmentalness in their small town in Alabama. It's Alabama, I believe. It is Alabama. It is correct. Alabama, and that was in one of the questions that my trivia team got right <laughs> this week. So yeah, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is nothing short of a cinematic masterpiece. It's a ten out of ten. Um, I don't think the other actors even showed up that year because <laughs> Gregory Peck was like, yeah, this Oscar's mine. <laughs> and he got it. But yeah, Mary Badham, Philip Alford, you did a fantastic job keeping up with the aforementioned awesomeness that was Gregory Peck into Kill a Mockingbird. For the love of God, go watch it. Wasn't he just nominated five times? Like, they didn't even nominate. They were like, Gregory Peck? These are the nominees. Gregory Peck well, is Atticus Finch. Only, Gregory Peck is Atticus Finch. Gregory Peck. No. Probably the only person that year who actually gave him any kind of competition was Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia. But even he was like, yeah, no. Just, yeah. yeah. Right. I'm going to keep my slippers on. <laughs> keep on my fuzzy slippers. I'm going to stay home. Yeah, I'm going to get back on my camel and try again next year. Yeah. All right. On to my number four. And again, I have another actor tied with himself. Again? Uh, yeah, but when I tell you who it is and why it is, you're totally going to understand. It's because, as usual, again, I couldn't choose, okay? I, I tried. think you're setting a precedent here. Not, well, no, only for performances. Like, I won't do this for movies, but um, my number four, one of the greatest bad guys of all time, um, is Alan Rickman. The late, great Alan Rickman, gone far, far too soon. And uh, it's because I couldn't choose between 1998's Die Hard, where he played Hans Gruber, and 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he played the Sheriff of Nottingham. Both sarcastically wicked, snarky, absolute, the cheek on this man, <laughs> right? I mean, the absolute cheek. And he... Where are my... Detonators. That is correct. And I think if I if I had to edge it out, <coughs> excuse me, I'm I'm dying. Um, I think if I had to edge it out, I'd probably give it to Nottingham, Sheriff of Nottingham, just because he has so many good lines. Um, and because it's much, much easier to beat out Kevin Costner in the entertaining. <laughs> I mean, nothing wrong with the movie, right? But I think, you know, Bruce Willis holds his own a little bit better against Alan Why'd you have to nuke the whole building, Hans? Yeah, he, he holds his own a little bit better against Alan Rickman. But, I mean, Nottingham is the best part of Prince of Thieves. I mean, Christian Slater, who I like, is just whiny. and I mean, Morgan Freeman's in it, so it's got that going for it. But yeah. there are a few things better than... <laughs> Because it's dull, you idiot. It'll hurt more. <laughs> Call off Christmas. Like his lines are just so amazing, and he delivers them with. I, it's the first thing I remember seeing him in, to be honest. Because I don't think I'd seen Die Hard at this point, 
And um, I just thought he was the funniest. Like I said, I mean, there's no better word for Alan Rickman in these two movies than just cheek. I mean, the cheek on this man is, it's unreal. Um, he brings the full Rickman to it. And uh, I absolutely love him in both of these movies. Couldn't decide. Love him. Couldn't even do with a coin toss. I, huh? wish we, I wish we had him for 20 more years. Um, but, you know, there's life. Okay, so fair warning. After you hear about my number three movie, you're going to wish for kids in war again. Because <laughs> this one is a dirge. How do you find this stuff? <laughs> Look, this is the theme of the list. Kids who were asked to handle more than they probably, and did it with great aplomb, right? That's the, the theme of the list. So, I mean, the movies have to be kind of hard for a kid to take. So The stuff that makes you sit in your room and cry for three days. <laughs> yes, exactly. So my number three is from Germany in 1981. This was a movie called Christian F., Starring uh, Nachia Brunkhorst, I hope I said her name right, um, and it is based on an autobiography by a young girl named Christiane, who in the late seventies in Berlin, who was she was a typical teenage girl, thirteen years old. She was obsessed with uh, the music of David Bowie, who also puts an appearance in this film as himself. Uh, she backslides into uh, heroin addiction. At the age of 13, she has her first hit at a Bowie concert where we get to see the Thin White Duke performing his masterpiece, Station to Station. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the whole movie is about her just crying out for help and doing everything she can to get her her next fix. And Kids on Drugs, I've seen lots of movies about kids on drugs. This one is the, the worst. And I mean the worst in the best way. Like, Remember in high school when they made you watch that movie Scared Straight, I think it was called? That makes that look like a special episode of Family Ties. Seriously, Christiane F. is the very, very definition of innocence lost in film. You just, the whole movie, you're like, please, girl, get clean, get straight, get help. And she, Nacha Brunkhorst, does a fantastic job of de de uh, depicting this girl's descent into addiction it's so sad. The first time I watched it, I cried my eyes out. Um, and, and don't let the Bowie factor fool you. Even though he does the entire score and he appears as himself and this really cool concert footage and everyone loves Bowie, he's only in the movie for about five minutes and it's her show from start to finish. <coughs> and uh, it's a revelatory performance from her. And, uh, oh my God, she breaks your heart. And luckily, at the end of the movie, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, she does get help. But the withdrawal scenes, oh, the withdrawal scenes are actually worse than the addiction. Hard stuff. Very good movie to recommend to kids who, you know, are wondering about drugs, maybe. Uh, it's a cautionary tale. Very good cautionary tale. So, Christiane F. from 1981. Again, bring a lot of Kleenex, because this girl will break your heart. And she is astonishingly good. So, yeah. Please lighten the mood. Speaking of <laughs> astonishingly good... <laughs> And also, speaking of actors gone far, far too soon, let's talk about another Academy Award winner. Jeez, you got a lot of those. I do. Um, let's talk about uh, Heath Ledger. I knew you were going to say this. You just said gone too soon. Let's talk about yeah. Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight as the Joker. Yeah. Um, look, I, does anybody care about the plot of this movie? Nobody cares. It's <laughs> Batman protecting Gotham against evil while the Joker tries to, you know, roll down all kinds of craziness and Harvey Dent becomes Two-Face, and... I am an agent of chaos. Bad, Batman <laughs> has woman problems because he has commitment issues, and he talks funny. He talks funny. 
Um, Another Christian Bale movie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, nobody cares what the movie's about because the only thing anybody cares about is Heath Ledger playing the Joker. Um, Michael Caine, who, uh, of course, is in the movie, <laughs> um, called him a scary psychopath. And um, what I think Heath Ledger did here that's so important, and the reason it's it's such a great performance, is that he elevated the superhero, you know, comic book villain from the comic book to a villain. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, like, I love Jack Nicholson as the Joker, but it's, you know, he played it for comic book um, kind of laughs. Heath Ledger just took it to a whole different place. He took it to he a t- dark place. <laughs> it, yeah, he's super, he's dark, he's twisted, he's, che- again, cheeky. Didn't he base um, it a little bit on uh, Malcolm McDowell and the Clockwork Orange? I, you know, I don't know that, but I would not be surprised. The line I chose from him, I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve. <laughs> He is, look, if you haven't seen, even if you don't like comic book, I don't like comic book movies, people. I don't. I really don't watch. I know I'm hashtag basic and all that, but there's just way too freaking many of them. You can't keep up anymore. But this movie I will watch a million times over just for Heath Ledger. Won the Academy Award posthumously because we lost him entirely too soon. But what an absolute, absolute towering talent he was. And he absolutely, this is his tour de force. It's by far the best thing he's ever done. I'm or Greg Mellon's good, but I personally think this is his best performance of his life. He absolutely owned it, and I I don't even care who else is in the movie. <laughs> he's in the movie with Gary Oldman. I don't care, because he just is... Morgan Freeman, too. He's the best part yeah. of The Dark Knight, in the my best, The best thing about him in that movie, in my opinion, is the fact that like when they announced that he was cast, every person in the world was like, no, not Heath Ledger. Not that hunky guy from... He's too pretty. He's too pretty. And, the, you know, two, flash forward to two years later, like, oh, my God, no yeah. wonder you put him in there. Well, and now he's the bar that everyone else yeah. is measured he's, against. Yeah, every Joker since then has had to... Uh, has had to contend with Ledgerism. Yeah, so, yeah, Oscar well-deserved. So, uh, number two could very well be my most lighthearted movie on the oh, list. Oh, Lord. <laughs> we needed a little uh, levity here. And this is about four young boys going to find a corpse. Such a good movie. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. So my number two, my uh, silver medalist here, directed by Rob Reiner from 1986, the quartet of young lads, uh, Will Wheaton, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, and, uh, again, speaking of Gone Too Soon, River Phoenix. Stand By Me is my number two. Uh, told in flashback when a writer recalls his friendship with a friend he has now lost, four friends in rural Oregon, go on a two-day trek into the woods to find the body of a missing boy. But as we all know, it's a coming-of-age story. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Uh, Stand By Me. It's like a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is like a, it's like some basic stuff that I would say right there. Yeah, right. Anyway, so yeah, it's it's a dream cast. I mean, before he was annoying Wesley Crusher, uh, Will Wheaton, I think he shines in this movie as Gordy. Um, he actually played a killer on Criminal Minds. Mm. And he's pretty intense. Yeah, Will Wheaton. I think Who he's, knew? <laughs> he's kind of underrated, but he's also the 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 through line character. He's the narrator of the story, and he has to carry the whole weight of this movie on his little shoulders. And also, uh, you know, Corey Feldman. He's great, and so is Jared Connell. But let's face it, they're there. They're the B story. They're there to provide the plucky comic relief, and they do it very well. And they're fantastic in their bits. Teddy has one meltdown scene. 
Where he's like, like my the, father stormed the beach at Normandy. They're like the Mary and Pippin of that particular quartet. Yeah, they really are. And then, but it is really River Phoenix who just kills you in this movie, and especially his scene where he's breaking down and talking about how his family will never outlive. He'll never outlive his family's reputation uh, in the town because that's how small towns think. Uh, they're all good. They're all fantastic in this movie. It's a great ensemble of child actors, and uh, it's. Unbelievable, and it's just tragic that we lost River Phoenix at such a tender young age. And um, I got to get uh, I, one person who does not get enough credit in this movie, in my opinion, is Richard Dreyfus, because he basically narrates the story. He's in a couple scenes, but he narrates it, and he his voice does such a a great job of conveying the the story, and even a little bit of the sarcasm of of Gordy's character. And he does a lot of it just with his voice. So, props to Richard Dreyfus for this movie too. So. But uh, yeah, I also love John Cusack is uh, the Denny, Denny, the deceased brother of Will Wheaton, who uh, is, is that's the source of a lot of Will Wheaton's angst in the movie is having to deal with. Uh, well, it's the way his dad. His, yeah, his, yeah, he lost an older brother, and his dad clearly favored the older brother. So it's it's Stand by Me. It's a beautiful film, wonderfully. I think it's Rob Reiner's best film, and I love The Princess Bride. I love When Harry Met Sally. I love Misery. But nothing tops Stand By Me, in my opinion. I think it's his masterpiece. So. And uh, if I could, I'm going to tag on for a second. So because I'm a reader, um, Stephen King, because he writes horror, uh, people who haven't read Stephen King probably don't know that what he is is just a tremendous writer. Yeah. Um, he writes some really, like, amazingly beautiful things. And Stand By Me is based on a Stephen King story. It's called The Body. Yeah. Um, and I've never appears, read it, though. It appears... Um, in a compilation of short stories that also has a Shawshank Redemption in it. Uh, and I want to say it's called Four Seasons. Maybe, yeah. Or, or something like that. Something to that effect. But the body, it, it's just a really beautiful written story. Um, I read it and uh, his, um, first of all, they did a great job with the movie, movie adaptation. It's very, very close to the story, but it's the writing itself is just spectacular. So. And speaking of spectacular writing, I got to give a special shout out to Gordy's lard ass story too. <laughs> That's also some fantastic writing. That's right. Lard ass, lard ass, lard ass. That's a great comic scene in the middle of this uh, coming of age stuff. But yeah. That's my number two is stand by me. What do you got there? Speaking of comedy, I'm going to move into a, a a black comedy, a very dark comedy, um, but a comedy nonetheless from one of my favorites, Martin McDonough, um, starring two of his favorites, Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson. But the villain of the hour, uh, my number two from 2008's In Bruges, is uh, Harry, played by Rafe Fiennes. That's two 2008 movies in a row from you. Let me tell you, Rafe Fiennes in this movie, uh, okay. First thing I got to tell you is because it's a Martin McDonough film, like I was looking for a quote to use and there are none where the F word is not actually present. We try to make this some, you know, something PG-13 relatively appropriate for kids. I mean, unless they're listening to my brother talk about the movies he watches. Um, wow. Because they're all way too mature for children. But in terms of language, we try to keep it, you know, as PG-13 as possible. Um, so In Bruges is just a really dark funny funny movie i mean it's kind of inappropriate it's hysterical right? actually it's freaking hilarious and it's about these two hitmen who are sent by their employer to bruges which is this um medieval city that's in belgium um after a hit goes wrong uh on a priest they're on the lamb <laughs> yeah and so it turns out that uh harry the bad guy um he sends them to bruges because he wants to try to do something nice for colin farrell's character 
um, Ray, I think. Yeah, Ray and Ken. Yeah. Um, because Ray kind of screwed up the hit, and he wants him to have this nice, lovely getaway before he has him killed. And Harry went to Bruges when he was young, and he fell in love with the little cobbled streets and the canals and all the beautiful old buildings and whatnot. So uh, it's kind of this, like, crazy plot. And then when Ken can't kill Ray himself because he can't bring himself to do it, Harry decides he's going to have to come to it himself, and all the kinds of hijinks ensue, et cetera, et cetera. There's a fabulous phone-smashing scene where my favorite line comes through where he tells his wife, she says, Harry, that's an inanimate object. And he says, you're an inanimate effing object. <laughs> hilarious, hilarious movie. Um, and honestly, when you get the, the Gleason Farrell, you know, pairing, to have a villain who can not only hold their own, but also, like, steal some scenery from those two guys is, is pretty much an accomplishment. And if you haven't seen it, Ray Fiennes does that in fine, fine fashion. He is... Who knew he was such a good villain? But he is dastardly uh, and Harry funny. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he has a face of a snake. It's a little bit easier to play. In this one, he has... I mean, I think dastardly is just a good word for him. He's, uh... He's, he's vile, but he's hilarious um and i highly recommend it i got a cat on my lap hi max he, he wants to weigh you yeah my cat just jumped on my lap he wants to he wants to don't push any buttons buddy i'm gonna put you down here he's like there's not a single dog in any of your lists i don't know what's going on oh my god my number one's a dog no i'm <laughs> kidding um run my number one holy moly hey we're talking fast today it's unreal yeah uh okay so back to um some more talented tots, or tots. These guys are more like tweens, really. But number one, what could beat the quartet of awesome young lads from Stand By Me? Honestly, it, it was pretty close. Uh, but I went with Corey Hedebrandt and Leanna Leanderson in another 2008 movie. Three in a row, my goodness. My number one is Let the Right One In, directed by Thomas Alfredson, from a novel by, I'm going to kill this name, Jan this is a Swedish book, folks. A Swedish vampire movie. Oscar is a boy living in Sweden in the early 1980s. He's mercilessly bullied at school for just being himself. And then he meets a young girl, his next-door neighbor, a girl named Billy, who is very peculiar. She only seems to come out at night, can't seem to eat food, and seems to be able to defy gravity. I think she's a vampire. What do you think? But does she sparkle in a field? No, thank God. And since this movie came out the same year as freaking Twilight, this movie kicks Twilight's butt every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So, uh, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm not. Does anyone say, my monkey man? I don't think so. <laughs> but I've, horror is a genre that, for me, like 99 out of 100 movies are schlock. But the one time they get it right, they really get it right. And Let the Right One In is a fantastic, fantastic slow burn, coming of age movie. I mean, the vampireness of the movie barely is in, it's like 10 minutes of screen time. But it is basically about these two kids learning to cope with uh, their surroundings and their blossoming relationship and their blossoming friendship. But Ellie might also have some darker motives because she lives with an older caretaker guy who's kills for her because she can't bring herself to do it because she's basically a good person even though she's a vampire and Oscar because he is bullied so mercilessly at school he's on the way to becoming a young psychopath so in a way it's almost like she's grooming him to replace the old guy because he's getting sloppy and messing up and then there's an investigation into some grisly murders 
and it all builds up to a climb that's unbelievably tense climax in the swimming pool. If you've seen the swimming pool scene, you know what I'm talking about. Holy crap, does Illy wipe those bums out. <laughs> that is the only scene in the movie where you actually see some pretty good gore. But for the most part, Let the Right One In is most, mostly about these kids, and they are phenomenal. These two kids are exquisitely talented, and uh, don't let, again, don't let the subtitles fool you. The movie's 100% in Swedish. I highly recommend you don't watch the dub version. It's terrible. Um, it's just fantastic. Just fantastic. Uh, Let the Right One In is, without a doubt, and I'm not, I'm not even joking here, it is literally my favorite vampire movie of all time. So it's a perfect 10. So check that one out. But, you know, again, I hope you, you'll, you'll do this a lot. Oh, God, oh, God. Speaking of perfect 10s, <laughs> I promised a perfect 10 of my number one spot as well. Uh, and again, this is one of the cases where this guy's not necessarily a villain, but he is the antagonist, and his motives are somewhat questionable. Um, it's another one of those movies where you ask yourself, do the means justify the ends? <laughs> uh, or vice versa? I don't know. I don't know. In any case, uh, we're jumping ahead to 2014. This guy won, like, over 40 acting awards for this movie. But did um, he win an Oscar? He did win an Oscar. Ah, uh, see? That, there's the golden ticket right there. Not my tempo. Were you rushing or were you dragging? <laughs> if you haven't seen it, J.K. Simmons as Terrence Fletcher in Whiplash. <sighs> Listen, Damien Chazelle, I hated La La Land. I'm going to be honest with you. I hated it. But you knocked it out of the freaking park with Whiplash. To me, this movie is a perfect 10. Um... There's nothing I don't like about it. J.K. Simmons plays uh, Terrence Fletcher, who is a... How should I say this nicely? He conducts uh, a studio band class at a prestigious New York musical conservatory. And he is tough. <laughs> he throws a symbol at someone's head, okay? Um, and in his mind, again, like very much like Alonzo Harrison Training Day, in his mind... He's doing the right thing. He believes that you have to push people far, far beyond where they're comfortable in order to make them great. He likes to quote the story about how Bird became Bird because somebody threw a chair at him um, after a performance that was less than great. And he thinks that's how it's supposed to be, right? Like, if you're waiting for the next great thing to happen, you have to push them beyond the bounds of comfort. And so he... Um, is basically super, super abusive. So all the students in his, in his band, um, in his quest to find the next bird um, and, you know, make someone great and or recognize that kind of talent when he sees it. Um, and so he kind of locks horns with uh, Miles Teller, who plays a um, drummer determined to make the studio band and to work with Fletcher. Um, and so the, the movie is sort of a battle of wills between these two characters, and it culminates in the ultimate battle of will. Like, the ending of this movie... Didn't he do his own drumming? He did a lot of his own drumming. Yeah, Miles Teller did a lot. Um, there were also some, some other some session drummers. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the end of this movie, the battle of wills at the end of this movie was absolutely intense and great. And But it... It lends itself again to the morality question, which yeah. is, do the ends justify the means, right? Um, 
If you haven't seen Whiplash, J.K. Simmons gives a flawless performance. He can do way more than insurance commercials, people. He absolutely owns every frame that he's in. He's amazing. My favorite, the line that I wrote down, uh, Neiman, you were in the part. Alternates, will you clean the blood off my drum set? <laughs> it's just indicative of how he is. He doesn't care that these kids have, like, left their actual blood on the instruments um, you know, because he hasn't quite achieved perfection yet, and that's the only thing that he's going to be contented with. It's an intense movie. It's a great freaking movie. In defense of uh, Miles Teller, it must be said that there's probably maybe five people on the planet who could drum as well as the part requires. Yes. So the fact that he used stand-ins, I mean, honestly, he probably had to, at least for some of it. So, I mean, there's some very complex drumming in this movie. So. It's a great, great movie. Yeah, so. He, he did. He did what he could. So yeah. I got a couple of honorable mentions. Uh, uh, I went all the way back to the silent era for one of mine. Uh, Jackie Coogan steals every scene he's in against Charlie Chaplin in The Kid. Fantastic early silent film. Uh, I got The Innocence, which was a spooky, uh, you know, haunted house kind of story with uh, Martin Stevens and Pamela Franklin as, as possessed kids. Um, Patricia Gazi in Sundays in Sibel. I got the entire cast of City of God. Oh my God, young gangs. Um, a heavy influence on Pan's Labyrinth. I almost put the spirit of the beehive with six-year-old Anna Torrent almost doing the same thing. Um, and also Saoirse Ronan in Atonement. Did a very good job of playing it. She's messed up. She's a, a disturbing young child. And the trifecta of lovely young uh, actresses in the, the 1943 version of Jane Eyre, I got Peggy Ann Garner, Margaret O'Brien, and Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor's like 12. Jesus. She's so, she was, you could tell just that she was going to be just a lovely young lady, but she, she's, she's fantastic in her short role in that. So those are my honorable mentions. Do you got any? I do, actually. I have three. <clears throat> I have chosen uh, Mr. Smith himself, Hugo Weaving as the charismatic <laughs> and slightly enough. disturbed V in V for Vendetta. Um, and then I have a pair of ladies, actually, uh, who could possibly forget the um, iconic performance of Rachel McAdams as Regina George <laughs> in cult classic Mean Girls. And uh, Meryl Streep, Meryl herself as Miranda Priestley um, in The Devil Wears Prada, an absolute triumph. Um, no, no. Wasn't a question. <laughs> yeah, wasn't a question. Um She's really, really great um, in that movie. So, again, Meryl, just point the camera at her. You know. <laughs> and again, like I, sometimes, I think it's fun when the villains kind of take center stage. Yeah. Um, when you get to see a little bit of that, like you know, diabolical cheek. Yeah. Um, it makes some movies really just a lot of fun to watch, and that's kind of how I feel about these. So, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you for the outro. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to my Golden Heart. I do have uh, one guilty indulgence on my list. Oh, well, let's have it. Uh, I, I felt really bad for having a guilty indulgence on my list because my list was such a, like, a dirge, really. But I did put uh, Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events, because it's, uh, I mean, if you're going to suffer with comedy, I mean, you, you can't do worse than how Emily Browning and Liam Aiken uh, deal with Jim Carrey's evil shenanigans as he chases their inheritance um, not not necessarily as dark as some of the other movies on my list, but it's it's a really charming film and it's uh, it's it makes me laugh every single time. I forgot that with Emily Browning. If I had to choose a guilty indulgence, I would probably choose Mike Myers as Doctor Evil yeah. in the Austin Power. <laughs> I mean, 
it, where the freaking laser beams. And obviously he's the hero and the villain, but yeah. the villain is way more fun to watch. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed uh, Chris's uh, center stage villains and my uh, uh, talented youngsters. Uh, I think these kids did a fantastic job with difficult material for adults, you know, and they handled it with great, great panache. Don't say aplomb one more time. <laughs> great panache <laughs> and great verve and... Uh, that's heavy subject matter for a, for a child to handle. So I hope you enjoy these lists and uh, we shall see you next time on the secret lists number four. And I promise my next list will be more happy because <laughs> I've had some dank, dark crap recently. I'm going to go through and weed out your movie collection. I'm only going to leave the happy movies. No, because I'll have an empty warehouse. <laughs> All right, folks. Until next time. <laughs> Oh my god, oh my god. I'm going to have to hurt you now. Don't make me bust out the Peter Lorre voice. From all of us here at Jedi Cinema Geeks and our favorite, Denzel Washington, have a good day. King Kong ain't got nothing on us. Please watch Training Day, by the way. You guys, FYI, before we sign off, this one who's seen every movie by someone whose name he can't pronounce has never seen Training Day. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.